0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some
1: of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. At Greenlight Group, the biggest thing we care about is the biggest thing you care about, improving the quality of life with medical devices built with less risk. We know we're not physically there helping you to build devices, but our software is. So why wouldn't we build our software to be aligned with industry standards like ISO 1345 or 14971? We're the only medical device QMS solution provider to be named by G2 as a category leader for 13 quarters in a row. Because it's an odd number, I can't do the math and tell you how many years, but what does that mean? It means medical device companies who are out there making a difference believe we're making a difference and they're telling people about it. If you're looking to make a difference by getting quality, life-saving devices to market on an average three times faster, contact Greenlight Guru today to start the conversation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols, and I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, we spoke with Carrie Hobb about customer discovery for medical device companies. Kerry Hobb has been working in the medical device world for over 10 years. She's a part-time mentor in residence at Western Michigan University and a partner with Cantilever Business Partners, which is an independent consultant for uh, startup organizations. Prior to this role, she was vice president of product strategy at Aquero Histology, which is a startup of medical device to be used in the histology department. While there, she was responsible for the fundraising activities, customer engagement, and product development. And throughout her career, Carrie has implemented quality management systems and led the launch of products through development, clinical trials, FDA and CFDA approval, and marketing campaigns. She's seen just about every aspect of medical device development, but today, specifically, we talked about customer discovery. We covered things like, how do you determine the market fit for your device? What really constitutes a minimum viable product? The importance of focusing on overcoming the bias of technology and learning how to apply critical feedback to improve your product, not just, you know, the guy with the hammer, everything's a nail, right? Uh, We also reviewed what roles within an organization need to be present during the customer discovery process. Hint, it's more than just engineering. Executives matter too. They need to be in the room at certain points along this process. We talked about other things as well. If you have f- feedback on this episode, shoot us an email. We love hearing where you are on the MedTech journey. And I love hearing just any feedback, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But let's get to the conversation. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Carrie Hobb on customer discovery for medical device companies. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Today with us is Carrie Hobb. Carrie, how are you doing? Glad to have you on the show. I'm
0: doing great. Thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm excited about our topic today. It's one that I don't know that we've gotten into super detail in quite a while. And it's about customer discovery. And I guess before we just start, you know, I start firing away with my questions. Maybe maybe you can talk to us a little bit about your understanding of the process for customer discovery. And yeah, maybe we could just start there. What are your thoughts?
0: Sure. So I'm a little bit of a traditionalist. I was actually trained by the National Science Foundation i program. And the intent for the customer discovery is to be able to put together a business canvas model for a startup business to validate whether they have a viable business or not. And they can use that to lobby to investors, but you can take it beyond the business canvas. So really it it comes down to what is your value proposition and then who is your customer segment? And customer segments can be very broad because your service or technology may service a broad Or it might be very niche and you have to like drive down to find out exactly, you know, who is going to be your beachhead market for your product market fit. And then you have your minimal viable product.
1: Okay. So I guess when I think about the development process, I worked in, you know, both spectrums. Early on, I was uh, new product development. Then I went to manufacturing. So I kind of got to see both sides of that fence. But I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like when you talk about that customer discovery, how soon should someone be thinking about that?
0: So I'm a big fan of starting it before you even create a prototype because a lot of times when you're doing your customer discovery, you're not only learning like what the the pain or the gain is for the customer and trying to adjust and adapt your minimal viable product to what their major need is. so you have a product market fit. But one of the other things I like is that during that process early on, you really start to get what your user needs are, which really starts to play into you know your traceability matrix when you get into the development phases.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. When you talk about that design controls process, typically engineering wants to own that and marketing will will have it as well. And I'm sure you've seen several companies. What do you see being the most successful team or approach now for that customer discovery? Love to hear your thoughts there.
0: That's a great question. So for my, my very, very small organization, so you're talking about startups, I typically actually encourage like the CEO level and the marketing and the, the R&D person or the engineer to do customer discovery together, that they have to go through and make sure that you know they don't have leading bias questions or you know that they allow the customer to tell their story so that you understand you know the depth of their problems so that when you talk to them, you can explain the value to them. But I find that if if you get those three people involved that you end up with a very successful you know, product or service, or you identify like this isn't going to work and we either have to like pivot and fully focus on a different market or pivot and change our technology. Or you're just like, you know, if this isn't, it's not viable, we'll never meet the expected, you know, average selling price.
1: Do you see that? I guess what I'm thinking, I wasn't expecting you to say CEO. That's really interesting. A lot of times they're going out, they're fundraising and especially early stage. I can almost see just kind of, as you were talking through that though, really helping them make those pitches and make those things known. I I saw some of your background that maybe you have some experience with there. I don't know if you can expound on on some of those aspects as far as it being a a benefit.
0: Sure. So I will tell you a story as to what really kind of solidified me into this is this should be mandatory for any startup. And when I actually do due diligence for Cantilever, I check to see if they've done, you know, customer discovery. But my story is is that, you know, I started with a startup and it was super successful. It you know, it exited for over $200 million. And during that transition with the larger company, I actually ended up staying. I took a more of a leadership role with the, the larger company, realized that larger companies aren't my, my thing. So I stepped back into a startup and the startup was well-funded. It had $9 million. They had done customer discovery, but then they deviated from their findings to accommodate like what they thought they could do or what they thought they could afford, which was an interesting approach. But I didn't realize it when I started there. And so when we finally started going out to conferences and doing a deeper dive into the customer discovery, realized very quickly the product that we were nearly to, put pro- or to market wasn't what the customer wanted or needed.
1: Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not when you want to find it. Well, you never want to find that out, but especially not when you're getting ready right. or deeper.
0: But to answer your question, I think that customer discovery can literally start at any any point. I have a company right now that I just completed a, a six-month customer discovery for them. And it's more around what the validation testing needs to look like for their customer.
1: Okay. When you do that customer discovery for a client, what, what does that actually look like?
0: That's another great question. So I always require at least one person from the company to participate with me. And it's because... It's one of those where one you want to teach it, right? Like you want you want people to be able to adopt and move forward with it, even you know beyond this experience. But also because it's really important for somebody within the company to hear the customer say what they're saying and how you're pulling it out without leading bias, because it's a human trait that you want people to reinforce what you think. Because if you don't do that, if you don't have somebody from the company, you still have pushback as to like, well, you know. The one person here told me, and you can't say, "Well, how did you ask them?" So it's required at least one person from the company join me. Depending on how big the project is, is how many people actually have to participate.
1: Okay, okay. So I'm going to kind of go the other direction. Then suppose you have I've seen several pitches in the last several months, and I remember one. One stands out in my mind where I saw them pitch into an or, or an early stage startup pitching to an investor, and it was it was primarily engineers. They were basically technology looking for a problem. And and I'm sure you've seen that. Everybody's seen that at some point, but you probably even more so. I'd I'd love to hear what your thought is. How do you pull that back? Because when I think of customer discovery, it seems like even if you're going and doing some remediation, you probably have to have some foothold of a problem that we're going to dive deeper or pivot or something. How do you handle it if you have a technology looking for a problem?
0: that's always an interesting problem so you typically sit down and you do a brainstorming right you're you're just like what could this technology be used for and then once you identify okay what can it be used for you identify your customer segment and then you start your customer discovery with that segment if after 30 interviews they're like there's no way then you're like okay let's go to the next one let's let's do 30 interviews with this group and find out if if it's potentially viable I typically find that you have to do, over 70 interviews before you really have a very strong confirmation from that particular segment, especially in an instance where you're you have an, a technology looking for a problem.
1: Okay, now when you go through those interviews, and, and maybe this—hope this isn't a dumb question—but what do those interviews actually look like? The 30 interviews that you go through.
0: Sure. So you build a hypothesis. So it's very—it's a scientific approach, um, especially when it's it's kind of a deep technology. It makes it easier. So. And a scientific approach makes it easier for engineers to jump on board. So you make your hypothesis, right? Like, I think this customer will need this to improve this by this much. So once you have your hypothesis, you create some open-ended questions just so that when you get in the interview, you don't get stumped. It's very much a conversation. So you could completely go off board of what your questions are, but you always have them as backup. (laughs) So you get in, you know, you're super grateful that, you know, they joined you. And you just start to say, you know, can you tell me about, let's say that it is, because I'm medical device background, let's say that it is uh, something to do with uh, needles. You know, can you tell me about, you know, how how you make decisions around the equipment that you use to collect blood? And so they'll start to talk, you know, through or ask more questions of like, what are you looking for? But you try not to lead them that way. A lot of times we'll just start talking. And then you dig in. And they'll say, well, you know, we picked this one because of this, and we're like, well, why? Is it, you know? And they'll typically say, well, cost. Well, you know, how does it? Well, do you ever look at its performance? Like, what are the the key criteria that you're looking for? So, you do it without saying, is it because you know it's easier for the patient? Or you try not to ask those questions. just try you try to keep it broader, but direct them into what you want to discuss.
1: Yeah, <laughs> try not to lead the witness, I guess. <laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's that it's that keyword discovery and not, I guess, I don't know what the what the alternative word was, what customer showing <laughs> or something like yeah. that, leading them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do, do you ever see people do it poorly? Are there things people really kind of mess up at that you wish that people? I don't know. What What do you think?
0: Absolutely. And I'll be honest with you. I still do. Yeah. <laughs> so because, you know, especially when you get into those really tough. Uh, interviews where people just aren't talking to give you minimum information like you you really start to like feed them a little bit more and it's it's a bad habit so you don't want to say you know do you like this product because of the quality <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a yes or no and everybody likes quality it's kind of a no-brainer so yeah and when as part of paneling we teach small courses about and we do a lot of practicing where we have actually you know teams like question each other and interview each other and we provide a lot of feedback, a lot of it is just leading and bias. Like you don't want to be biased and you don't want to be leading.
1: Yeah. Are there specific biases that you see more prevalent than others in these conversations?
0: Yes. I built a product. They will love it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I could totally see that. I can totally see that. Well, you know, kind of building on that then, okay, in my background, I've always heard that the best engineering is taking away everything that doesn't need to be there, and what you have left, if it still meets the user need, that's that's your best situation. That being said, at some point you got to shoot the engineer. (laughs) I hate to use that term. Being one myself, but what constitutes a minimum viable product? How do you get to that point from those questions?
0: Sure. So I mean, like like we talked. So when you're finding out your value prop, you're finding out like what the customer actually cares about, and You know, your key value proposition that you're going to pitch to your investors is going to be a lot loftier, but all of the little value propositions, all the benefits that your product can bring will be part of the minimal viable product within reason. You want like the top, you know, important 10. You also have to meet like the minimum specifications that could be your competitive product. And so when you start to talk about the user needs, one of the most efficient companies I've ever worked for is that when they would have their weekly meetings the engineers would be talking about what they're working on you know it would always be a question does that come back to a username? does that come back to a user to your point it's the most it's the most efficient way to stay within the minimal viable product because engineers love to engineer and you know they come up with amazing things but to your point a startup can't afford an amazing thing they need the minimal viable product to get the feedback and turn the next version
1: yeah I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts i'm just kind of imagining in my own or if you have any specific examples i'm just going to throw out one that maybe you can say yes or no on or, or, or while you think about it like if i was to imagine like maybe there's a software that does i don't know on your iphone you can do eye tracking software to determine your level of pain you know that's that's one that there's a lot of money around pain so, if, so just suppose someone was able to do that and your user need was to determine the level of pain but the engineers are focused on sticky footers and and really cool looking buttons i mean that's gold plating we don't maybe we care about that as far as the user needs to be able to interact appropriately with it but i assume that would be something i don't know you probably have better examples so you do you have any examples or is that am i am i off base there <laughs>
0: So one of the companies where we really struggled and when I realized that we weren't hitting the minimum viable product, the number one thing was, is that we heard it had to be consistent repeatedly and there was very little room for it to not be acceptable. And to do that, there were a lot of engineering things that had to go into it. But then there was like a focus on the software and the software had nothing to do with the its ability to repeat itself consistently. And so, you know, it was one of those where, you know, we have to focus on this. And that was one of the things that ended up really biting us in the end is because one of the key features that we needed wasn't there.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. So what are the, what are some other specific things that maybe if we even go upstream of talking to that customer segment? The actual market fit or the market that you decide to go forwards or pursue, do you have any recommendations for companies when it comes to looking at those things?
0: Sure. So, I mean, if you're just trying to do your first initial pass of who should I even be talking to, what customer segment do I think this is good for? One is I always encourage individuals to put as many ideas down on paper before they ever get started. And it's because sometimes you get stuck with this is who my target audience is and you don't need. So get everybody on paper. What you do then is, is that typically somebody would go back and say, okay, the market size is this, you know, this is the number of competitors in the field, you know, here are the barriers for entry. And then you also look at, you know, who has the, who do we think has the biggest pain? And you kind of balance those two, but the people with the biggest pain are typically your early adopters. And sometimes even if it's not the biggest market and the best fit, but they really have a problem that your product can solve. Go to that Beach Hub market, get your feedback, and then launch your other ones.
1: Yeah, there's another flip side to this. And when you were talking there, it kind of made me think of like the human factors side of it. So human factors is more—I I don't know—I suppose it's really making when you what you have fit the customer or fit that problem. This determine, but it, but they're but they're similar. You want to just determine what the true true problem is so that you can solve just that problem. Maybe you can do extra things, but first, but first and foremost is, is solving that true problem. So that's sometimes hard for engineers to engineer to the problem versus engineer to a solution. I don't know what are your thoughts are. You know, I'm also curious how you even came to this this point where where you're such an advocate for the customer. I don't know if you can go either direction there. Yeah, sorry. To yeah, no, that's, so
0: that's multiple ways. Okay, so... The, so. When I started, um, I started out in operations. And I actually, when I first got out of school, I was in quality. And then I I moved to supply chain and it was in operations. And I was at that startup at, at Acre Cytometers. And when we got procured and they notified us, they were shutting our building down. I was like, well, if you want me to stay, I need something else to do because I don't like, I just need. And so they gave me a project to do, which was a research use only device to launch that as a program manager. And because I was one of the few programs that actually launched in time with budget, they actually offered me a longer term position.
1: <laughs> Good job. As,
0: a, as as a what they call the coordinator, which was basically um, a pro, senior program manager in the training ground to become management, or leadership management. And so when I got into that, and I started working with, uh, I had this lovely marketing woman that worked with me, and watching her do customer discovery really started to make things click. Of like you know watching our device be developed when we were a startup and then listening to her questioning, it was, it made the link for me. So um, when I left there and went to the other company and I was told that they had done their customer discovery, they had a very long list of user requirements only to find out that they had adapted them to what was acceptable for the company, which is not what user requirements are intended to be. So that failure, I'm not, I'm not a fan of failure. So, I took, um, I actually decided that I was going to take a good two to three months to kind of reflect on that experience and, you know, find out what I could have done differently or what the company could have done differently. And it came down to the the user requirements. And shortly after that, I actually became a mentor in residence at Western Michigan university, where I was introduced to the formal process, uh, by the national science foundation. And i on to the national um, I-Corps program multiple times with different teams from Western Michigan University.
1: So you mentioned, you mentioned that user need, it, that's where the breakdown happened specifically because those user needs, they kind of transition them from true user needs, almost turning them into company needs. Or uh, I wonder, do you have a specific example that you can give, like how that can happen?
0: Sure. So, um, prime example is, is that they used they used because um, it was histology, so they used wax blocks with tissue samples in them. And our equipment was meant to help automate the sectioning of these wax blocks for to be put on slides for pathologists to review. And when they were going through it, they had seven key tissues that needed to be be done. And then when I started doing customer discovery at the conferences realized that the very first key most repeated tissue wasn't on our list and i asked why and they said well it costs too much
1: mm, I see. so
0: all of our like verification and our development and everything else they didn't want to put it on the list because it costs too much to run the samples
1: yeah economics gets in the way it's probably more often than it should that's that's interesting so okay trying to think here. So what did you what learn did you when work? you started going through the national or after that experience, you, you you were reflecting on those user needs and things. Did you come up with a, a better process to establish those user needs? And maybe there's a couple different ways to look at this user need, like true user need versus company need. That makes sense to me, but there's still a difficulty in the industry as far as How do I make a user need that is, you know, one that I can validate, but that's also, it's abstract, but it's not too specific, but it is specific enough. It seems like it's a bit of an art. I don't, I wonder if you can speak to some of that.
0: Yeah. So that is an interesting question. (laughs) So for user needs, I'm a big fan of constantly validating them because, you know, situations change, environments change. And so, you know, just validating them whenever you have a chance to talk to a customer it doesn't have to be a super focused thing. So when you, um, what, what,
1: what do you mean by constantly valid? Like what's your what's your definition there?
0: Oh, so if you have a user need that says that it needs to produce or it needs to be accurate, you know, 99% of the time. Like when you're talking to a customer at a conference or if you run into somebody with a job title that's relevant, you do the, you know, well, how accurate is the current one? You know, like, do you ever have experience with this? And so you can always like, without pointing to the fact that you have a technology it could be just be curious and keep asking the questions and if they come back and say well now our current one's only like 93 percent and you're like really like you know is that does that bother you like you know and you start to get into is it actually a problem because that's the other thing this is that people start at 93 percent and they're like great if i hit 95 i'm good but the question is is that is 93 percent acceptable
1: that's a really good point because when I first thought of that validating your user needs, I thought you meant like constantly putting your device in front of someone saying, "Hey, does this meet the user?" Need? That's a different type of validation. Obviously, I love that. I love if you if you have any other thoughts or, or examples about how to do that. But you, what you gave is great. But I'm 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 a little greedy here, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm trying to think. So the other the other big problem that people often run into is, you know, the business cares about the cash, right? Like, what can I sell it for versus what are my, my cost of goods? The other big piece that's often missed is uh, distribution, though, is that the company has an assumption as to how the product should be distrib- um, distributed. So is it, you know, they want to do third party or they want to do direct ship. And, you know, if you start talking to large hospitals, they have contracts with large distributors. And if you can't get a contract with a large distributor, you don't you don't get a contract with the hospital. And so like understanding like down to that level. So if you say, you know, I have to, you know, distribute this product to this customer in this condition. So if it has to be sterilized, you know, and you have, but you don't know how it gets to the customer. You have to know your full, what I like, well, what the system calls is the ecosystem is that it's not just who buys, who decides, who influences, who sabotages, but everybody in between that process.
1: Wow. That's a, that's a really good observation because like if, I can see myself thinking, okay, I've got a surgical instrument, it's gonna be sterilized. I care about the ergonomics. I care about, you know, maybe even the packaging at the moment. But if the hospital is the one who buys all of that, those things, yeah, that makes sense. You gotta think about that. That's actually part of the customer almost from a company, from our standpoint. Okay, that's a really good point. I love that. Yeah. I don't think that I've actually heard anyone talking about validating the customer needs continually, whether you're at a show, whether you're talking to somebody, as far as making sure those are the right user needs. That's really good. It's powerful. Okay. So other, do you have any other thoughts about how you actually go about determining all of those things? I mean, maybe that's a no-brainer. If I think surgeons, okay, they work in hospitals. How do you go about feeling out that ecosystem to make sure that you've, you've, considered all of those things and i hate to add, put an add-on question right now but once you do would i put that into my user needs or, or immediately start applying that to my design controls as far as distribution and things like that i don't know however far you want to go there but maybe we could start with the ecosystem
0: yeah so for the ecosystem interesting question so one of the companies i did did a project for for customer discovery we were trying to identify who would be the beachhead market who is it that we need to target? And we had a customer segment of, we thought that paramedics or there's going to be ERs and hospitals. And then we had a break, we got into it and we, there's many different sizes of hospitals. So, you know, like locally at the University of Michigan, they're huge versus, you know, Charlevoix, it's a very small hospital and who would actually use the equipment would be significantly different. And then their purchasing process was completely different. And so, you know, then you have to sub-segment, right? So it logically would make it easier for us if we went to a smaller hospital because the process is easier for acceptance and the individuals that are using it, we're going to be higher trained, so you can have a higher success rate. And so when we started to talk to them about how do you receive product, it ended up that they were part of this global, or not global, but um, a larger network of hospitals that negotiate purchasing together. And so it became, okay, it wasn't just them that we had to talk to, we had to talk to this big group of people that negotiate contracts for very small hospitals. Okay. So I don't know if that answered your question or if I went off the rails, but no,
1: no, I think you nailed it. I mean, it's almost (laughs) as if, if you start just saying a big hospital versus small hospital, small is going to be easier. But then if you go up the chain, that person's distributing still, Large contracts, then maybe it starts to become somewhat similar to that large hospital, and you don't want to cut them out. Um, that's probably a, a gross simplification of what you just said, but I think I get it. That's that's a really good point. I love that. What other what else am I missing? You know, sometimes with customer discovery, I um, I don't know what I don't know. So, what are other things that you see people constantly maybe getting wrong pitfalls people get into? Um,
0: people doing like five interviews and thinking they have it. Mm. Um, I have. It's, it's extremely common for people to do the N of one. Like I heard it, I oh. heard this, and <laughs> it was from one person. Um, and I'm to the point now where when, when I do instruction that we make them create like a database, and they have all their hypotheses, I make them keep tabs of who either supported or didn't support their hypotheses. Because I find that when people can see, oh, three people didn't agree with it, but the one did. I should probably listen to the three or let's look at the one. Why are they different? And can I find more of those people? So it's really the, you know, the confirmation bias, not getting enough numbers. Numbers are key. The other one is, is don't call the CEO. When you start, Uh, you start very much at middle management and because you're going to want, they're going to talk, they're more likely to talk to you and you can get like the root cause before you start to move up the food chain. You're going to get it wrong. I always tell people you're going to get it wrong the first two weeks. But then once you get you know more comfortable with it, week three, you typically start to iron out all of the things so you can start to move up the food chain to kind of the higher ups that you're interested in.
1: Okay, that's a great tip. Starting in the middle and then working up and down whichever direction you need to go. That makes sense. Have you seen okay. this? This might be completely off topic totally fine if if you if we want to punt on this, but I've actually started hearing previously champions or influence. I don't know what the correct PC term is at the moment as far as who is championing your product, but it had previously been a physician or a surgeon and so forth. But now uh, a lot of companies are more interested in the, in the voice of the nurses um, or th- those those um, more boots on the ground in the hospitals and things like that. Um, is it is a similar process as far as going through medical management and then accessing those people in a similar way?
0: Absolutely. So one thing is, is that if somebody in an interview ever mentions somebody else is part of that needs buy-in, you absolutely need to talk to people in that level. You typically can start with managers in that level, but it's also good to talk to people who actually have hands-on experience with the patient in that particular use case. I've been told multiple times in different customer discovery activities of, well, if you don't get the nurses' input, product will die. Yeah. <laughs>
1: My wife is so, a nurse. I believe it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how much technology is pushed on the nurses and without their buy-in and then it not working out. So mm-hmm. they're yeah. a key, key piece to the ecosystem, even if they're not decision makers.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. You mentioned that confirmation bias when you're when you're teaching those things and how to do that. It makes sense Total, totally to, to get more information. Would you say 30 is kind of like that? You, you mentioned 30 a couple of times. Is that kind of the magic number for you?
0: No, 30 is the beginning.
1: Okay. It's just
0: the beginning. <laughs>
1: okay. glad to <I> ask.
0: <laughs> so, so I typically push people for a minimum of 50. I really like to see 70. If you get a hundred, then there should be very little question into your business canvas as a whole. But your value prop, you can narrow it down pretty quickly around 30 to 40, but you really confirm it. You would, you would want 50.
1: And this might get really tactical, but how do you go about getting that many voices who are, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's the trick, right? One is this, that, so the companies that I work with often have a network of people that, that they are linked with. I typically will talk to what I call the friendlies first. They know the technology typically, so I typically don't count their feedback because they have an emotional investment in making sure it's successful. I ask them, who else should I be talking to? And then they'll start to give me names that weren't on the friendly list. And therefore I can start going after those. That's one way. Um, another is, is that if you're targeting an industry and there's um, some like key industry leaders there that you really need their input on, I'll be honest with you. I go to LinkedIn and I look at people and I find job titles that I like. And then I sleuth until I find emails and then I email them very directly and you know talk to them doing research for new product. And, you know, you're an expert in your field and really appreciate any feedback you can provide, you know, just 15 minutes. I always say 15 minutes. They typically always give you 30, but I always try to respect all their time.
1: Yeah. And I guess you find a lot of success with that, that direct reach. That's cool.
0: People, um, a lot of my, a lot of the teams that I instruct always want to do reach out through LinkedIn because it's, you know, not, it doesn't feel as aggressive to them. And it's, it has the worst return rate. Like people rarely respond by
1: LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. I can especially see that being in that, that field, you know, medical professionals, maybe they don't necessarily yeah. see the value. I actually, I actually talked to a lot of doctors who maybe they have a LinkedIn, but they don't actually do anything with it. So that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's, that's really good. I appreciate you talking to me about this today. What am I missing? Anything else, you know, anything you'd like to talk to tell our audience when it comes to customer discovery, um, I love that you have a, a, I don't want to call it a magic number. There's no such thing, but a hundred, I thought 30 was a lot, but (laughs) we're talking knowing your customer. That's really what it boils down to. So it sounds like.
0: Yeah. And to be honest with you, when you go to a conference, I mean, you can easily talk to 30 people, but then, I mean, you're looking at a very focused group and you don't get the full ecosystem. So You know, it's not just talking to the people that are going to use your product. It's not just talking to the people that are going to buy the product, which by far is really critical that I find that that's missed often is that they just go to the user and they don't understand the manager's needs to be able to bring that product in. But yeah, it's not just your user. You have to understand, you have to understand their entire ecosystem as to how your product would get to them, how it would. Be accepted by them. How it would be trained, you know. It's it's the whole gamut, and there's multiple different ways to build that out. But that's really what I would say is that you know customer discovery is really key. You can get your user needs out of it. You can constantly validate it, and then know your customer.
1: <laughs> yeah, you've really kind of broadened my perspective to a certain degree because I'm sure a lot of us think of our customer as the the end user, but let's just say like an in endoscope, for example, in a gastroenterology clinic. Maybe, maybe the physician is the one using that, that scope, but then the nurse is the one who's going to clean it and reprocess it. Maybe someone else is going to service it. All of those people are in your customer scope based on yep. what it sounds like I'm hearing. That's really, really interesting. Eye-opening. Yeah.
0: It's actually
1: an est- nurse anesthesiologist that use those. <laughs> nurse anesthesiologists. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sorry.
0: So- <laughs> personal experience with that
1: one (laughs) no that's fine (laughs) yeah that's uh, i'm sure a lot of people will will yeah that's interesting
0: yeah so anyway yes it's more important than just the user
1: okay very cool well thank you so much we'll put uh well where, where can people find you to see what you're doing and and to learn more about maybe this process and the process that you teach
0: Sure. So, um our uh, I apologize our website's down right now, but it would be kennelyver um bp for businesspartners uh, and otherwise I can be reached through LinkedIn. Um with uh just with my name is fine. Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Maybe you'll be one of the exceptional few who actually respond on LinkedIn. No. <laughs> I
0: always respond on LinkedIn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we we we've got to spread that that uh that aspect but but yeah we'll put links in the show notes so that people can find you and uh, find out what you're doing maybe by the time this episode is out everything will be all ready to go so very very cool thank you so much for coming on the podcast carrie i enjoyed this conversation and for those of you listening thank you for listening to the global medical device podcast if you're interested in an end-to-end solution in uh, how you can help your product get to market safer and more faster and more efficiently go over to greenlight.guru check out the MedTech Lifecycle Excellence platform that we're producing over there. Thank you for listening. We'll see you all next time. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Just a few of the points I took away from the conversation. Customer discovery is about actual discovery and determining the why behind the decisions customers make. It's not about selling your product or leading the witness and asking leading questions. You should be discovering things during this section of the development process. Also. User needs should be validated, not just through testing of the device. I really like the point that Carrie made when she said this. You should be validating that your customer needs are the real user needs by asking users if this is really what they're looking for. Every chance you get, if you talk to a doctor, maybe you're designing something for urology and you get to talk to a urologist, think, you know, is this really what you're, you're looking for and validate those user needs in multiple ways. Also, who you think is your target market is not necessarily your target market. You should be thinking about and identifying all the different touch points in your chain of use. So that's the purchaser, the reprocessor, if it's reprocessed. Technicians and nurses, even if it's a surgical device used by a surgeon, think about who might be handling and laying those things out, and even those who dispose of the product. When you think your target market and who your customer discovery should encompass, it's usually a larger umbrella than just the end user. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out to Carrie on LinkedIn. Let her know. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email, etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru or look me up on LinkedIn. You can learn more about what we do if you head over to www.greenlight.guru. We're the only MedTech Lifecycle Excellence platform. And on top of that, we've built both a community and an academy where you can go to join the conversation or learn more about the things we discuss on the podcast. You can find those at community.greenlight.guru or academy.greenlight.guru. Next week, we'll be speaking with Scott Carson on the eBay of medical devices. How can the regulations handle a used market of medical devices? It's a slippery topic and it's an interesting one. It's one that deserves even more consideration. So definitely stay tuned for that. Finally, if you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. It also lets us know how we're doing. Thanks again. Y'all are rock stars. The best medical device companies don't just follow the rules. they lead with quality. At Greenlight Guru, we try to do the same. Our medical device success platform is based on the latest FDA and ISO standards, as well as the best practices of medical device manufacturers who lead the industry with products of the highest quality. If you're ready to bring safer, better medical devices to market faster, contact greenlight.guru today.